Why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5, shifting gears a little bit this morning. Uh, recently we've been in the book of Acts uh, as we've gone through the book now for a number of months. And uh, I know last Sunday I was out and I understand I heard nothing but good things concerning the message last Sunday that Wade filled in for me. And I'm grateful that he was able to do that. And then this morning, being Father's Day, uh, I felt compelled to uh, preach a message out of Daniel chapter 5. Now, it is Father's Day. It's aimed specifically at men, not just dads, but men. But I believe that if we really, really uh, look to apply this to our lives, that each one of us, regardless of our setting, regardless of our stage, where we are, we can apply these things to our lives this morning. So Daniel chapter 5 is where we're going to be. When I was in college, I, I had a, a desire really early on to go into advertising. And when I realized what the GPA had to be to get into the advertising school, I realized, ah, that's a no-go for me. And so uh, advertising got pushed to the, to the background, and I kind of took a back road towards it, I guess, in some ways. But it still is something that you know, I'm a little bit intrigued by, I guess. And I came across, as I was preparing this message, uh, a, a list of the top advertising slogans of the 20th century, uh, the, the top slogans through that 100-year period of time. And uh, it was interesting because there were some there that I recognized, there were some there that I didn't. And uh, so you get to do a little audience participation this morning. How about that? So the top 10, this is according to a website called adage.com, the top 10 uh, uh, advertising slogans of the previous century. So let's go ahead and roll the first one. Diamonds are forever. This is one I had no clue. I guess that shows how many diamonds I buy. Diamonds are forever. Uh, Any idea what company that is? De Beers, Mike says. Let's see. There you go. The diamond buyer, Mike Rinder Connect. All right, just do it. All right, let's see it. Nike, that's good. Number three, the pause that refreshes. Any idea? All right, let's see it. Coca-Cola. Next one, number four or number five, we try harder. Avis, Hertz, which one? Avis. Number six, good to the last drop. Maxwell House. And by the way, let me just take a moment for a shameless plug that we do serve breakfast for free between both services. Maxwell House is not served, but we'd love for you to come next Sunday. All right, number seven, breakfast of champions. Wheaties, let me take a moment for a shameless plug. We do serve free breakfast between both of our service. <laughs> Wheaties are never served, however. We serve something much better. So, all right, number eight. Does she or... Do, now, this is a... This is... Never mind. Number eight. Does she or doesn't she? Half of you already know it. All right, let's see. Clairol. How many of you have never... You don't even have a clue about any of that, number eight. Let me... Okay. <laughs> That's good. It's kind of an old one. Those of you that answered out loud, I bet you feel bad now. Number nine. When it rains, it pours. Morton Salt. We have a group over here to my right that watch far too much television. (laughs) All right, number 10, where's the beef? Now, can you hear that poor lady's voice? Where's the beef? Wendy's. All right, you can, you can take those off. You know, that, that last one, Where's the Beef, is interesting. That was a Wendy's slogan that came out in 1984, 1985 was the, really the years that they ran that ad campaign. It was a tremendous success. In fact, Wendy's profits rose 31% worldwide the, the year following that particular campaign. The 81-year-old lady that was on that commercial that you remember, the Where's the Beef lady, her name is Clara Peller. She was an 81-year-old retired manicurist when she flat turned the world upside down through that one simple ad campaign. That's what she was known for. I mean, everybody knew that phrase and still knows it, obviously, today. And it was interesting because she, uh, she was a person who just absolutely out of nowhere became an overnight sensation. 
at the age of 81 years old. The whole premise of the advertising campaign, you remember, it put her in a lot of different scenarios, and she would always have that one same line, where's the beef? She would come up to a counter, or she'd be in some different situation, and it would always be a uh, tremendously large hamburger bu- uh, bun, but then the hamburger itself was always teeny tiny. And so that would be her phrase, where's the beef? And the premise of it was that really when you boil it down, what she was saying was, is that some things upon closer inspection fail to deliver. That there are things that sound good, and there are things that outwardly may appear to be good, but when you look a little bit closer upon closer inspection, those things fail to deliver. Now, in our country today, the word Christian has a variety of definitions. If you ask an average, ordinary person, even a church-going person, what does a Christian mean? What does the phrase or the term Christian refer to? Far too many people will say things that the Bible never even mentions. There'll be many that will say, well, a Christian is a person who goes to church, or a Christian is a person who owns a Bible, or a Christian is a person who reads their Bible. Some will say a Christian is a person who believes in God. Others will say a Christian is a person who is good at heart. They, they intend well and they do well to serve other people. And they have all these varieties of definitions of what a Christian is. However, when you stack up the definitions that many people have of Christian up against what God's definition of Christian is, there could not be a larger gap between the two. From God's perspective, a Christian has nothing to do with whether or not we own a Bible, whether or not we even read a Bible, whether or not we attend church, how good we are, who we know, where we go, where we've been raised. A Christian, from God's perspective, is only simply described by a life that is absolutely lock, stock, and barrel, 100%, completely, totally surrendered to the person of Jesus Christ. That is what it means to be a Christian. Now, do we read Bibles? Hopefully so. Do we attend church? Hopefully so. Do we do good to other people? Hopefully so. But the title Christian is described by God simply and solely as a life that is totally, completely surrendered to the person of Jesus. Jesus as he is proclaimed in the pages of Scripture. Nothing more, nothing less. In fact, for many today who claim to be a Christian by their own definition, Upon further inspection, sadly, they don't pass the test. Upon further inspection, their proclamation of being a Christian fails to deliver. Why? Because they are not full-blown followers, not fans of, but followers of the person of Jesus Christ. The book of Daniel is a book of prophecy. You can... in, in, in uh, uh, if, if, if you've ever studied this book particularly, you'll find that it is a book of deep prophecy. It's a difficult book to understand. The passage we're going to look at this morning in chapter 5 is one that is somewhat easier to understand, a little bit easier to apply. It's dramatic in nature, but it's easy for us to apply it to our lives. We find here in this particular passage of Scripture in Daniel chapter 5 that the key player is a person by the name of Daniel himself, obviously. Daniel, as we look through the book of Daniel, was taken captive by the Babylonians back in the year 605 B.C. You wonder who are the Babylonians. You don't need to know a whole lot about who they were. All you need to know is that they were the world power at this time. They were taking the world by storm. They were uh, uh, very cruel in their treatment of their enemies, The Babylonians in the year 605 began to invade and ultimately take over the people of God. And we find here in this particular instance that Daniel, along with numerous others, were taken captive and dragged out of their homeland back to the land of Babylon where they were forced to live as captives, taken in exile 
from their, from their own country. Daniel was one of the best, and he was one of the brightest. He was probably a teenager around that time. However, he had already demonstrated certain skills in regards to leadership. He had already demonstrated tremendous maturity. He was one who was greatly wise. He was one who had a tremendous amount of knowledge. He was the best. The best. He was the cream of the crop. And when Nebuchadnezzar took the people of God out of their homeland to Babylon as captives, Daniel was one of the absolute best that would be taken out of that group. As was the custom of the Babylonians, they would often try to take the nationality of their captives away from them and replace it with Babylonian culture. Daniel was given a new name, a Babylonian name, and work was begun to try to turn him and to reform and to recast him into a Babylonian, though he was a Hebrew by nature and by heritage. And so as the days would unfold, more and more was done. Much investment was made in the life of Daniel by the Babylonian leaders to try to turn him into a Babylonian just like the rest of them because he'd be very valuable to them as a result of that. However, what they failed to recognize was that the greatest quality of Daniel's life was that he had a tremendous devotion to God. In fact, he was one who was well known by his own countrymen as one who was a full-blown follower of God. He was not just a follower of God in name. He was, in every detail of his life, one who was surrendered to God himself. And so as you look through the book of Daniel, you begin to see the struggle going on as the world tries to mold Daniel into its mold, whereas Daniel seeks to stand for God at all costs in the midst of an ungodly culture. Well, Daniel had the ability that not everyone had, and that ability was to interpret dreams. He was known to be able to solve difficult problems that no one else could, could solve. He was known to be able to interpret dreams, and it was an uncanny ability that God had given him to be able to do that. Well, as we see here in this particular passage in Daniel chapter 5, we'll find that the ruler of the day here in chapter 5 is a man by the name of Belshazzar. Belshazzar was in the midst of a feast, basically. The year was 539 B.C., about six years after Daniel had been taken captive. And in this feast, for a thousand people, Belshazzar was absolutely just throwing down. He had his, all of his wives there, not his wife, his wives were there in attendance. His concubines, which the best way I could proclaim perhaps that is wives um, in training, <laughs> I guess, in waiting. And so they were all here at this feast, a thousand of them. And the uh, alcohol is flowing, the wine is being drunk. And then one, uh, for some reason, Belshazzar, in the midst of all these poor decisions he's already made, the most powerful man on the face of the earth at this time, the ruler, the king of, of Babylon, chooses to do something that would put a series of events in motion in his life that would cost him tremendously. Belshazzar calls for the gold and the silver utensils, the cups, to be brought to them in the midst of this feast, in the midst of this drunken party. Now, these were not ordinary gold and silver utensils. These were gold and silver utensils that had once been used in the worship of God in the temple. Belshazzar's father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken those items himself whenever Jerusalem, whenever the people of God were hauled off into captivity. And so Belshazzar calls for these items, these gold and silver utensils, once used in the worship of the one true living God of heaven and earth. He calls for those items to be brought to him, and they're used as this party continues. It was a very poor decision, one that would cost Belshazzar greatly. And we find here in chapter 5 that as that scene continues to unfold, that as they drink, that something mysterious that only God could accomplish would happen. Look at what it says in chapter 5, beginning in verse 4. 
It says, they drank the wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. Now you can see this is the most powerful man on the face of the earth, and what he has just witnessed puts nothing but sheer terror into his life. His knees, literally, the Bible says, are knocking together. His face grows pale. Everyone who saw him there would have known that there was something that had happened that, that shook him to the core of who he was. And as this party unfolds and as it ensues, and as, as uh, these thousand in attendance are praising these false gods of gold and silver and, and wood and stone and iron, uh, gods that did not even exist, God, the one true God, chooses to intervene, and he does so in miraculous fashion. And we find here in verse 5 that the form of a man's hand appears and begins to write. As we'll see in a moment, it'll tell us exactly what it was written. It writes in Aramaic, and it writes in such a way to where the king, Belshazzar, was able to see everything that was being written. He's unable, however, to determine what the words mean, and so he calls his best magicians to him. And he says, you've got to help me to figure out what this means, what this is that's written on this wall. None of his magicians could do it. And so he remembers this man, Daniel one of the captives that had been taken from the people of God. And he calls for Daniel to come and to try to interpret what it was that was written on that plaster wall that shook him to his core. Jump down to verse 15, and let's see what happens as Belshazzar the king begins to interact now with Daniel. He says, Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me, that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me. But they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally, he says to Daniel, have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you'll be clothed with purple, you'll wear a necklace of gold around your neck, you'll have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. This is a big deal, and this is the world power of the day. Verse 17, then Daniel answered, and he said before the king, keep your gifts for yourself. Or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and will make the interpretation known to him. Well, Daniel proceeded in Belshazzar's life to point out to him that he was a man of tremendous pride. And he pointed out to him the danger that this pride would cause and how seriously God takes pride whenever it's found in a person's heart. Look at what it says down in verse 22. Daniel says, Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this, but you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. And they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. You have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and your ways you have not glorified. In other words, what Daniel is doing here is he's putting his finger into the chest of the most powerful man on earth. And he's saying, though you have a grand appearance in your life with all the wealth you could attain, with all of the authority that one person could have, that when you say the word, hundreds of people will jump 
to accomplish what you command them to do. Though you have everything this world could afford, Daniel puts his finger in his chest and he says, in the one area that matters most, you've missed it. You're a man of pride, not humility. And the God of heaven today is going to call you into account. Verse 22. Or look down as he begins to unfold what the inscription means in verse 25. He says, now this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, mene, tekel, upharsin. That may sound odd to us today. It was Aramaic. More than likely, they would have understood what, or they would have been able to read what was written, but they did not understand the meaning of it. Verse 26, this is the interpretation of the message. Mene, Daniel says, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. By the way, he said that twice. Verse 27, tekel, he says, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Verse 28, Paris, he says, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. I guess you could say a proper interpretation of it would be, in English, weighed, weighed, or numbered, numbered, weighed, deficient. We find here for Belshazzar that his days are numbered not just of his kingdom. He'd be the last king of Babylon. His kingdom's days would be numbered. His own personal days would be numbered. And we would find here that though the outward appearance of his life was beyond what any other person could have ever imagined, upon closer inspection, he failed to deliver. It was a classic case of, where's the beef? Everything looked good on the outside. But in regards to his standing with God, it was absolutely absent. Look again at verse 27. It's an interesting statement that God would make to him through Daniel. He says, you have been found or weighed on the scales and found deficient. Your translation may say, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting or found lacking. Scales in the Old Testament were an everyday use. They were something that everyone was familiar with. In the Old Testament days, scales were used more often to weigh measures of, of money. Gold and silver would come in units, and you'd have to weigh those units of gold and silver. And any time a transaction was made, any time money changed hands, you'd have to weigh that gold and that silver. In fact, if you've ever read the book of Proverbs, you understand that there would be a lot of corruption that would go on with those scales or with those balances or with those measurements. In fact, there would be some business owners that would have one set of scales whenever they would be purchasing and another set of scales they'd use whenever they would be selling, both obviously to work to their advantage. And so whenever a transaction was made in Old Testament days, it was customary that those units of gold or silver would be weighed to ensure that they were accurate. And what is happening here is that the God of heaven and earth, the God who breathed life into every single person, including this most powerful king on the face of the earth, the God that we read of in Scripture, who owns everything and is the creator, this God chooses in this point to look at this earthly king and to weigh him, the measure of his life. And when he weighs him, he finds that he's deficient, that he's lacking, that he doesn't measure up. Even though he had everything outwardly that life could afford, in the most important area, he was deficient and he failed. And he failed miserably. God would tell him that his kingdom and his life would come to an end. Look at verse 30. It says that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. And so Darius the Mede 
received the kingdom at about the age of 62. This king, Belshazzar, would be the last of the Babylonian kings. His life would end that very night. There are two historians that are extra-biblical sources. They're not biblical writers, but they are historians that capture for us part of the history in that early uh, uh, sixth century. And both of those historians validate what Scripture tells us in verse 30, but it expands it just a bit. The Babylonians, as the most powerful kingdom on the face of the earth, had a 20-year supply of goods that were stocked up for themselves. You would think they'd be set and ready for decades to come. 20 years of supplies had been saved. In fact, the place where this palace was was a fortress. It was a stronghold. The Euphrates River would run right through that city. And the historians tell us that when the city fell, it fell this way. That the very night that these events unfolded, the enemy came in and they redirected the Euphrates River through, through means of a canal into a lake so that the Euphrates River stopped. And as it ran under the, the, the gates of that city, once it quit running and they redirected it, then the troops just marched right on in underneath the city wall and they took the city quickly. And Belshazzar the king was killed. And he was killed that very night. What's the principle that comes out of this when we look at this dramatic set of events that took place in this ruler's life? The principle is this, and I hope you'll jot it down. That the measure of a man is revealed in the weight of his surrender to the control of Jesus Christ. If you want to measure the life of any man or woman, any person, then the measure of that person, the measure of that man, is only ultimately determined and revealed by the weight of their surrender to the control of the person of Jesus Christ, period. Just as we have a lot of people that re that reform what it means to be a Christian, we find that there are many people today who claim the name of Christ, who feel that things are just right between them and God. However, there are major areas of their lives that are not surrendered to the person of Jesus Christ. And if you were to ask them, is everything okay with you and God, the question, the answer would be, oh yeah, things are absolutely right with, with me. Even though, even though they perhaps are not being changed and conformed to the image of Christ, they haven't been for years, even though the, the, the study of God's Word or the reading of God's Word has never been a priority in their lives, even though giving to help further and advance the kingdom of God, whether locally or globally, isn't even on the radar. It's a fighting match just to even get a consideration of giving to help further the kingdom of God for which Jesus Christ himself died. If you were to ask them, are you a Christian? The answer would be, oh, absolutely I'm a Christian. Don't you see me in church? Don't you see me carrying my Bible? Don't you hear me singing these songs? Yes, I'm a Christian. Even though there may, not, there, there may be major areas of their life where for months, if not years, sin has been allowed to linger and remain without any sense of, of, of remorse or, or, or repentance or any desire to, to see that sin done away with. There are areas of their lives where God is just not allowed. And there's a mentality that says, God, the area of relationships in my life, that is off limits to you. And I'm going to run my relationships, and I'm going to choose who I'm with, and I'm going to choose who I'm going to marry, I'm going to choose how I'm going to uh, uh, care myself in my marriage, I'm going to choose where I invest my time, finances, man, I'm going to choose how I spend my money, uh, I'm going to choose what career I pursue. You're, you're just off limits, God. Well, are you a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. And what happens is, is that we have a lot more fans of Jesus Christ 
who follow him whenever it's convenient, and a lot less true, devoted followers of Jesus that are way in over our heads, both feet into the deep end, fully devoted, immersed, lock, stock, and barrel followers of Jesus Christ, surrendered. Very, very few. But are you a Christian? Oh, yeah. Well, it sounds like in this passage, the real measure of a person is not revealed by who we know or how much we got or what we drive or where we went to school or who's in our circle of friends or what numbers are in our cell phone or any of that kind of stuff. It's not measured by how big our bank accounts, we, uh, how big they are or how many they've got. It doesn't matter where we go for vacation or how many homes. None of that stuff matters in the measure of a person. But it sounds an awful lot to me from this passage and it's validated throughout the New Testament the real measure of a man is only determined by one thing, and that is the weight of our surrender to the control of Jesus Christ in every area of our lives. Here's the good news. Here's the good news. Is that I don't have to become a super saint akin to the Apostle Paul for me to measure up in the sight of God. I can be a Christian for one week. <laughs> I can be a Christian for an hour. And if my life is fully devoted in every area to the person of Jesus Christ, doesn't mean I've got it all figured out. Doesn't mean that I've arrived. Doesn't mean I'm perfect. Doesn't mean I don't have areas where I'm struggling or areas where God is at work. Doesn't mean that I'm, that I'm any of that. But if my life is just surrendered to Jesus Christ, I measure up. <laughs> and that's something that every person here can decide today. And so when you look at your life, if God were somehow able in dramatic fashion to take out the scales that held your life, and if he were somehow today able to balance everything that makes you who you are, your time and how you spend it, your pursuits, your passions, your dreams, your failures, your victories, your finances, your possessions, your family, your actions, your motives, if he were to lump all that up, and if he were to just drop it on the scale, and then if he were to measure you against his standard, would you measure up or would you, as this king, be found deficient? Here's the interesting thing that stands out to me. The most powerful man on the face of the earth, who had everything at his disposal, failed. While a captive slave very possibly in his early 20s by this time, passes. Why? Because of where their heart stood in the sight of God. And so fathers, as you seek to lead your families, would you say that your greatest impact comes in the area of how you model a surrendered life to Christ? Or is it in some other area? Men, women, when you look at the pursuit of your life, what gets you up in the morning, the motive of your life, would you say that your life, if it were to be measured out today, would be one that is primarily motivated by a surrender to the control of Christ or by something less? You know, it was dramatic what God did to get this king's attention. And in the same way today, I believe, God still seeks to work 
dramatically. For you, perhaps, in these recent days, he's done things to help you to understand maybe just the unsettledness of your heart that things are just not right. Maybe for you, there have been circumstances that have begun to unfold in your life that have caused you to think about things relating to God that you've never thought about before. Maybe for you, you've come to a place recently, if not this very moment this morning, where you're willing to say, today, God, I don't know how I'm going to do it, and I don't know where things are going to, where, where provision is going to come from. I don't know what my friends or my family is going to say, but today, the only thing that matters is that I leave this place totally, completely surrendered to the person of Jesus Christ. If you're willing to make that commitment, whether you've done so once before and wandered or for the very first time, here's what you'll find, is that the God who breathed life into you will be more than glad to take over the life that you yield back. And what he takes over, he has a tendency to bless, to protect, and to use if you'll only let him. Let's pray.